industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, November 30th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we're going to talk some recent crypto-related news from some of our payments companies, including PayPal and Square. We're going to check in on Matt's recent Retails Not Dead basket as we prepare to enter a new year with a vaccine on the horizon. We've got a listener question regarding a small cap bank, and we'll wrap it up with one to watch. Joining me this week, he's back after taking last week off. For, for some pretty good reasons, too, I might add. Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, good to see you, man. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Oh, good to see you. It's been a, I, I took some time off last week. We It's easier for us to get away on, on weekdays because, you know, little kids <laughs> in school. So, um, uh, you know, then whoever's watching them just has to drop them off. So, sorry to miss you, but it was a nice, well need, much needed rest. And now I'm back and ready to go. Well, yeah, it sounded like I said, uh, sounded like a very good reason. So, uh, very understandable. Glad that you and your wife were able to get away. And hey, folks, listen, celebrated an anniversary. So, you know, hey, you, you get a chance, throw them a little love on Twitter. Tell them, tell them happy anniversary. Uh, <laughs> but Matt, let's talk first and foremost uh, this week: uh, PayPal and Square. Uh, a couple of companies we always enjoy talking about. Uh, members love them. Listeners love them for a lot of obvious reasons. Uh, PayPal CEO Dan Shulman, Square CEO Jack Dorsey, they've been very clear about their belief that they see cryptocurrencies playing a role in the world to some degree. Uh, so we've seen some news out from both companies uh, recently in, in regard to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Let's talk a little bit about the latest. What's the latest with what these companies are doing? Well, so Squares isn't exactly new news. What they they uh, recently bought fifty million dollars of Bitcoin for their own balance sheet. It's more of an investment on their own. But just before we get into PayPal's news, just let me give you some context of how important Bitcoin is. That Squares jumped into it um, in the third quarter alone. One over one point six billion dollars of Bitcoin went through Squares' network, meaning Cash App customers bought and sold that much. That is 11 times as much as it was a year ago. Remember, Square's been doing this for two years. So that's a pretty big surge in popularity. That $1.6 million made, uh, made Square $32 million of gross profit, which isn't a great margin, but it's not bad. I mean, that's a, that's a needle mover. Well, it's um, just, and that's Bitcoin trading back and forth, right? That's just individuals trading Bitcoin back and forth, right? Correct. That's, Square, yeah. that's uh, Cash App users, to be specific, right. uh, buying and selling. Um, one interesting thing I saw, I saw a hedge fund called Pantera Capital estimates that since Square launched two years ago, they now account for 40% of Bitcoin volume in the US. Holy cow. 40% from Square. So I know I'm much more of a, a Square fan than a PayPal fan, but being honest, PayPal is the bigger company. So this is why I wanted to say this first, because PayPal's news could be even more significant. Um in Oct- on uh, the October 21st, I believe it was, PayPal announced that it was going to launch the ability for its users to buy, sell, and hold Bitcoin, similar to what Square allows its Cash App users to do. But the real detail that's important is in the same press release, they said that they have plans to make Bitcoin and cryptocurrency usable as a payment method to PayPal's 26 million merchants. That could be huge for this, the currency. Right now, um, I mean, you can't go to any just any merchant with a Square terminal and pay with Bitcoin. 
without doing some like intermediate step like getting a debit card or something like that. So this could be a huge kind of needle mover for one mainstream adoption of cryptocurrency. I don't necessarily see it as a mainstream a big revenue source for PayPal, but for cryptocurrency as an industry, it could be a, a, a game changer. Well, yeah. And I mean, to your point, we talk a lot about needle movers and how companies may introduce some sort of functionality or capability. Maybe it's not a big needle mover, but ultimately what it does is it creates engagement, right? It keeps people within that universe um, using their products and services. And I, I mean, I can certainly see where that would be maybe the point of focus in the near term for, for companies like Square and PayPal, getting, getting that functionality in there. It, to me, it feels like a very easy bet. Doesn't feel like there's really any downside as long as you understand the space. Uh, it, but it also feels like there are challenges for crypto, at least in the near term. And you mentioned it in regard to mainstream adoption. Now, maybe that clears up. Maybe as time passes, maybe that adoption as as a medium of exchange, maybe that becomes a little bit more commonplace. I mean, I, I, I don't see a big reason today why I need to go to the store and pay for something with Bitcoin. I mean, it just yeah, I mean, it doesn't doesn't seem like there's any real advantage. Um, but I mean, given given what we know today, given the, the small steps these companies are taking, it, it feels like maybe that mainstream adoption right now doesn't even matter. Well, as far as mainstream adoption as a currency, there's two use cases. There's adoption as a currency and kind of as a store of value. So as a currency, I see three main obstacles to really mainstream adoption of Bitcoin. One, it's very volatile. You don't want to buy a type of currency that could be worth twice or half as much in a week. Um, and if you don't think Bitcoin is could do that, look at some of the charts from the past few years. Bitcoin can you know, go up or down by a few thousand dollars in a week. Um, so that's another thing. You don't want the volatility scares people away. Number two, there are too many cryptocurrencies, <laughs> and it's easy to make a new one. So on, on, when I was checking just before we were on on the show, there are over forty one hundred active cryptocurrencies right now. I mean, there most of them aren't big, but there are a lot of big ones. There, you know, there's there's over ten that have a billion dollar market cap or higher. There's a lot of cryptocurrencies out there, and it's pretty easy to for institutions, if they want to, to make their own. So, I mean, the idea of Bitcoin at first was one central currency, but if there's 4,000 of them floating around, it's not really that <laughs> it, it defeats the purpose. And number three, as you mentioned, there's it's it's easy. There are some really easy ways to pay with U.S. dollars right now. Sure. I sure. mean, with a lot of these fintech innovations, you, you know, I mean, I t I tap my wallet on a on a card reader at some places now, and and I can make a payment. I mean, it's it U.S. dollars aren't that tough to use anymore. <laughs> no. So, in in my mind, for Bitcoin to get mainstream acceptance, it needs to do something that you can't do with dollars. Which I get that there's a lot of use case for international money transfer and stuff like that. Yeah. But between volatility and the fact that there's a, literally thousands of them. And the, the innovations in dollar-based fintech, I really can't make the, the mainstream use case myself. But apparently, a lot of people disagree because, you know, Bitcoin, there's $359 billion worth of Bitcoin out there right now. And it's, 
uh, over $19,000 a piece. And so apparently some people agree and are buying it. But. Well, yeah. I mean, it could be argued certainly that there's a lot of speculation in that market. I'd be willing to bet that a lot of people that are speculating in that market don't really understand exactly how it works. Um, I mean, I can't sit there and say that I fully understand how it all works. My basic understanding is, though, that there there's a fixed amount Right, I mean, there's a fixed amount of Bitcoin. So if you have something that is limited in supply, that that obviously will make a difference in, in something something like dollars, for example, as we've seen, not limited in supply, Matt. <laughs> they can right. kind well, of that, just print the them big, off. Of the <laughs> that's the big argument for Bitcoin being a store of value, um, and that it's it's essentially inflation proof in that sense. You know, U.S. dollars, the government can always print more of them, which they do pretty regularly. <laughs> and uh, with with Bitcoin, that's not the case. There's a finite right. amount. So as a store of value, it can make sense. But if that's the big use case, then who cares if you can use it at PayPal's merchants if it's just a store of value? So that it's Bitcoin really needs to, in my mind, decide which you know which way it's going to go. Um, and and I mean, like I said, I can't make a a use case for owning Bitcoin as a store of value over gold right now, and I can't make a case of using it as a payment over U.S. dollars. So. That's just yeah, me. yeah. Fascinating, fascinating market. And we'll talk a little bit more about digital currency later on in the show as we uh, jump into the listener question. But first, let's talk a little bit about something we've talked about a lot this year and, and something specifically we've talked about um, in, in regard to an article that you've written, some companies that you've really been focused on here. Uh, we've, we've been talking a lot about the retail space, particularly the physical retail space, bricks and mortar, places where people have to actually go physically. Um, it didn't seem like 2020 was setting up to be all that good of a year for a lot of these retail concepts. Things have started to maybe turn a corner a little bit. We, we've got some interesting data here over the weekend in regard to Black Friday. Um, traffic at stores on Black Friday fell by 52.1% compared with last year. Now, that is 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 coupled with online spending on Black Friday surging 21.6% to reach a record high. And I, and I think actually we're going to see today, you know, Cyber Monday I think is going to turn out to be the the biggest digital sales day ever. We'll have, we'll have to wait and see how those numbers actually shake out. But given everything that we know, we've we've seen at least a, we've seen some signs of life here in the retail space and retail isn't dead. Let's talk a little bit about the retail isn't dead basket and the specific companies that you've been talking about here this past year. Yeah, and, and the thing to mention first is that none of these are on are e-commerce. Um, my, the whole point is that, one, in a post-pandemic world, people are going to shop at stores again. There's going to be demand for going out. E-commerce, even right now, even in the pandemic, makes up about 16% of all retail sales. This is according to the Census Bureau. So there's still most retail sales take place in person still. That's going to be the case after the pandemic. The, the percentage of e-commerce will continue to tick up, but you know, physical retail is not going anywhere, despite what people may think. Um, so there's going to be room for quality retailers after this is over. So I, I made this basket, I, of uh, and we did a show about it called uh, The Retail Isn't Dead Basket. Jason has all his baskets, so I wanted one. <laughs> um, so these are five real estate investment trusts that all are somewhat involved in retail, that I personally own all five of them. Um, I, I, I feel like I can never chime in on Jason's war on cash basket because I don't own all four. 
this is a basket that I'm, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. <laughs> you don't own PayPal, right? That's the only one of the four? I don't own Visa or MasterCard. Oh, Matt, you're killing me. We got to change See, there, there you go. Now I'm out of that conversation forever. <laughs> now I'm going to reel you further into the conversation so that you just feel compelled to buy them. But that's for another That's for another week. Let's, well, let's let me ask you, do you own any of these. my retail REITs? I don't own any of them, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm just, it's not a space that I tend to look for a whole heck of a lot of exposure. Now, with that said, I tell you, you make a very compelling argument. So I want you to continue on, please, because I know our listeners will love it. Okay, so there's five in five companies in the basket, and I'll go through and briefly give you like a one second description of what they or one sentence description of what they do. You have Simon Property Group, ticker symbol is SPG. They are the largest mall REIT in the country. They just they own seven of the ten most valuable malls in America. They invest in the Class A malls. They're big, big time malls. These are the high end properties. Uh, you have Tanger Factory Outlets, which is ticker symbol SKT. They are the only pure play outlet shopping REIT in the market. The the big open air outlet shopping attractions, they're in, mainly in touristy areas. Um, I know Jason's from South Carolina. There's one in Myrtle Beach that I know of, and uh, Charleston has one. So uh, then number three is the Realty Income Corporation, which I'd call that kind of the backbone of the basket. They're a stock that, the ticker symbol is O. They do well in pretty much any type of economic environment. Um, even in the pandemic, most of their tenants are essential businesses, so they've held up really well. Uh, fourth is EPR Properties. They call themselves the experiential REIT. Um, I know a lot of people will roll their eyes when I say this, but about almost half of their properties are movie theaters. <laughs> um, they also own uh, Top Golf is a big a big tenant of theirs. They have water parks in their portfolio. They have ski resorts. Vail Resorts is a big tenant of theirs. Um, so there are their experiential properties, which service service businesses are a form of retail. Um, you know, restaurants are a, a type of retail business. Anything that sells a service is usually a type of retail. Uh, and fifth, last but not least in my mind, is Seritage Growth Properties, which is a REIT that Warren Buffett wholeheartedly believes in. He's actually their biggest individual shareholder, him himself, not Berkshire Hathaway. He knows a few things. And he knows a thing or two. Um, <laughs> this is a REIT that was created specifically to buy a portfolio of old Sears properties to uh, renovate and turn them into things other than Sears. Because, you know, even Sears didn't want to own Sears. That's why they created Seritage. Um, so they are gradually developing this portfolio to premier retail centers. Because if you remember, Sears, when Sears were built in the you know, back in the day, they were some of the most premier shopping destinations in town. They're in great locations for the most part. Rundown buildings, but in great locations. So, you know, the theory is that if you turn those into great retail assets... Then you'll have premier assets in premier locations, and it's a winning combination. So those are the five. Um, since I put out that article in June, a lot has happened, obviously. Um, when when I when we first started the retail as a dead basket, it looked like we were going to reopen with no problems in June. That's when that big second wave hit. So the big second wave hit right after I put out this article and made me look like an idiot. <laughs> um just bad timing. That's all it was know. bad timing. Yeah. But since then, we've had the you know the the vaccine news has come out as as positive. Um, people are starting to realize that these companies aren't going bankrupt. They're all in good financial positions now. Um, since that time, the S and P is up by twenty two percent. So put that in context. So the market's done pretty well. So that's been a driving force too. Just running through some of these numbers, Simon is up by forty four percent since that time. Um, on the heels of good vaccine news, uh, they they modified their merger agreement with Taubman Centers, if you remember. 
at a, at a cheaper price than they were originally going to get. So they acquired one of their biggest competitors for a pandemic price, which is a good thing. Um, Tanger Outlets is up by 47%. They recently said that traffic through their properties, not necessarily sales at their retailers, but traffic through their properties is up 90, is 99% of last year's levels. That's pretty impressive for a retail re- right now. Um, and the holiday shopping season is a, a, is a great time for outlets historically. And Tanger's in a good position because their properties are outdoors for the most part. They're very conducive to social distancing. You know, it's not the crowded mall atmosphere. You, you, you can get your own space, you have ventilation, things like that. So people are more comfortable going and the numbers are showing that. Um, they also have a ton of cash on hand to, to uh, make not only make it through the, the tough times, but to pursue opportunities as they come up, which outlet shopping is still a pretty small industry. So they have some room to grow. Um, Realty income, which is, if you're going to buy one of them, that would be the one I would say, just because they're, like I said, they're, they own mostly essential businesses. Um, Dollar stores are a big part of their portfolio. Drug stores like CVS and Walgreens are big tenants of theirs. Uh, Convenience stores, uh, warehouse clubs, anyone who's been to a Costco lately knows that they're not hurting. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> in my time in Columbia anyway that's the only place you could find toilet paper right now by the way oh no are we getting back to the getting back to the days of hoarding toilet paper uh, Mr. Moser hasn't been to a store lately yeah they're all out <laughs> well I mean I, I tell you what I, I I started thinking about that maybe a couple of months ago and I you know I just I mentioned something to my wife and I said I want to go ahead and order two big boxes from Amazon because I just don't trust that people won't start freaking out again and just taking all that stuff off the See, shelves. that's why the stores are out because it's all at Jason's you know, house I'm just yeah now I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna re- <laughs> resell it and what is that war profiteering <laughs> um but so you know, Costco's done a great job of keeping items like that in stock, which is why they've been doing great. Um, Realty income's only up by 8% uh, since I wrote that, just because they weren't beaten down that much in the first place. Probably a little bit of a stronger competitive position, it sounds like, from the very get-go. Right. So, they're, yeah. they they were in a good position going into this. They do have some movie theaters, but not a ton. Um, for the most part, their properties are doing really well. Um, EPR properties... Their properties are not doing well, but that stock is up 20% since I wrote that. Um, they su- successfully modified their lease with AMC, their biggest biggest tenant, um, in a mutually beneficial way. It gives AMC a much-needed break on rent and locks them into longer lease terms, so the properties will stay occupied longer. Um, so that's, you know, that's mutually beneficial for both. I got a question for you on EPR real quick. Just sure. a question for listeners too. I know EPR pays or paid a monthly dividend, and they suspended that dividend for the time being. Um, still paying the preferred dividend. I see. Now, when a REIT in in any position, when a REIT suspends their dividend, how, what does that do? Is there is there a a time frame in which they have to reinstitute that dividend in order to be able to keep that REIT status? Or is it something where if they maintain the preferred, then they still maintain that REIT status? Well, the preferred dividends they generally have to maintain or they accumulate and have to be paid in arrears at the end. With your common dividend, it depends on your profits. Specifically, REITs have to pay out 90% of their taxable net income. So if a REIT doesn't have taxable net income, which EPR doesn't right now, um, they're, surprisingly, EPR was profitable in, in, the, in the third quarter. <laughs> that came as a shock to me, and I follow the company pretty closely. But a company that's half movie theaters was profitable. Um, but but barely, I think they made like four cents a share. Um, 
the dividends they paid out in like January and February will cover their obligation for the year. But in 2021, let's say they have a dollar per share of taxable income for the year, they would have to pay out at least 90, 90 cents a share in dividends. So it has to do with if they're profitable. There's no time limit if they're not profitable. Um, Seritage, the next one I'm going to talk about, they stopped paying their dividend well well before the pandemic, and they're they're not a profitable REIT right now because they're focused on development. So um, they don't have to pay a dividend until they are profitable. So interesting arrangement. Very, um, very indeed. So EPR is up 20%. Favorable arrangements with their movie theaters. Um I know when they had first reopened a lot of their properties, they said top golf traffic was actually up year over year because people believable. just wanted to get the heck out of their house. That's believable. Um, I mean, at the, when the pandemic ended, or not when the pandemic ended, when the lockdowns ended, I should say, and proper and things were allowed to reopen in early summer, they, you know, people just wanted to get out, and they're the, those are the type of places they wanted to go. The driving now, range, driving range, right down the street from our house here, it is constantly, constantly slammed. I mean. Two stories, you know, it's owned by owned by Fairfax County, but it is it is a very very busy at all times of the day. Right. I mean, their properties are getting affected now with the with the new surge of of COVID cases. You know, some places are doing lockdowns again, things like that. But a lot of their properties are. This is their slow time anyway. Like wa- they, like water parks. No one's going to go to a water park right now. <laughs> um, nope. <laughs> the ski resorts are doing fine because they're conducive to socially distancing and things like that. Um, you know, Top Golf's. They're they're pretty much an outdoor golf attraction. They're not going to get that much business right now anyway. So as long as their movie theater clients or tenants are able to make it through the tough times, they'll they'll be fine. Um, and they have over a billion dollars in cash. It's worth mentioning to, um, and are only burning. They're not burning through much at all. Like I said, they're profitable now, so they're doing pretty well. I mean, that's that's in my mind one of the best bargains in in real estate at the moment. And then finally, Seritage. Seritage has more than doubled off the lows. Um, like I said, up sixty five percent since it was already up in June for the the reopening. Um, Seritage. The biggest question is, do they have money to make it through? They, unlike all the other ones I mentioned, they do not have billions of dollars on their balance, you know, their big credit facilities or things like that. They rely on their rental income and income from some asset sales to fund their operations. And in the start of the pandemic, everyone thought, oh, no one's going to buy any retail properties anymore, so they won't be able to sell anything. Their tenants aren't paying rent. But now it turns out that wasn't the case, and they have a nice little buffer. So that's why they're they're nicely up. As long as they have the money to redevelop their properties, this is the there's a ton of value creation potential, but like I said, they're they're the, the least liquid of any of the the five REITs I mentioned. But overall, I mean, you know, looking at the returns, three out of the five are over forty percent up year since I I made the basket. I'm I'm satisfied with that. It's not the war on cash basket by any means yet. <laughs> I'm not claiming the title. There is no title. There is no title. We're just you know we're just doing our thing, man. We're just doing our thing. <laughs> Well, Matt, thanks for the update on that. We really do appreciate it. I know our, I know our listeners do too. Um, moving on, we got a question from a listener recently. Matt Ben on Twitter asks, "Hi, Jason. Any chance for an industry-focused episode on Silvergate Capital? It's a bank that has a platform for cryptocurrency called the Silvergate Exchange Network, the SEN, with a lot of institutional transactions. Thanks, you and Matt make financial discussion interesting." 
And I will say he also he, he concluded that you and Matt make financial discussion interesting with with the laugh face, right? With the, with you know the little tears of laughter. So I mean, uh, maybe that's an LOL. I mean, uh, yeah, listen, it was very very thoughtful sentiment, and and it sounds like we're at least doing uh, our job well enough. <laughs> well enough. So let's keep on doing what we're doing, Matt. But Ben, really, thank you for the question. It's not a company that um, I, I've never really dug into Silvergate before. I'd heard of it. I mean, a very small, small bank, of course, but um, not too small. I mean, it's just a small cap bank, uh, but but an interesting one nonetheless. And in looking a little bit more into the Silvergate exchange network, uh, particularly in this age of digital currency, it seems like this is a bank that might become a little bit more relevant as time goes on. What do, what do you think about Silvergate, Matt? Yeah. So, they're not, like you said, they're not a very big bank. They're big enough that we're allowed to talk about them, but not much sure. more than that. Yeah. And around uh, a $600 million market yeah. cap, right? Something like so that. The, the Silvergate Exchange Network, which is the most interesting part of the business right now, um, I was reading that it's a intermediary that kind of it, it facilitates the transfer of money from one cryptocurrency player to another. That sounded interesting enough, but then I started reading their list of customers, and Coinbase is one of their customers, Gemini is one of their customers. So the 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 use case is that normally if a customer buys Bitcoin in US dollars, because when you buy Bitcoin, you use you know money, the exchange would have to transfer that somewhere, and then it takes a couple of days, then it would get transferred to another exchange to buy to buy crypto or something like that. So what the Silver Silvergate exchange does is it facilitates this kind of 24-7 real-time money transfers between cryptocurrency exchanges and major hedge funds and other digital currency players. Um, you know, There's mining operations that are customers of the bank. So it's an interesting case. They have over $2 billion of cryptocurrency deposits. So most of their deposits are in cryptocurrency, not you know US dollars, which is an interesting case. Yeah, and you square um, that up to Square's balance sheet with $50 million. In Bitcoin, I mean that that can give you at least some context there as to how big of a role crypto is is, is playing for a company like this. Yeah, this wasn't always a crypto bank. They they're they've been around for over. They're, it, on their website, it says they've been profitable for 21 years. So they've been around for at least that long. Um, they pivoted to crypto. In, I mean, their CEO's been there since 2008. They pivoted to crypto in 2013, which good timing. They were you know first to the party. It sounds like that's how they were. Able, I mean, Coinbase, Gemini, those are some of the biggest players in the industry that are their customers that they use for their money transfers. So it's a, it's an interesting industry right now. It's it's worth mentioning that as a bank, there are two sides to the business. There's deposits and lending. So pretty much the the, the exchange network and the, the crypto deposits, that's the deposit side. On the lending side, they're a mortgage lender. So that's kind of an interesting... Um, it, it, it looks... Um, most of their assets are either mortgage-backed securities or what are called warehouse mortgages, meaning the um, lines of credit to mortgage brokers. So they are—they're a mortgage lender. So their their loan portfolio is actually pretty high quality. I, th- I saw that their non-performing loan rate is 0.16 percent right now, which is really low if you look at some of the other banks right now. So it's it's interesting that that's how so that's how they they make their money a combination of income from their lending portfolio, which is mostly mortgages on the commercial of a commercial nature. So commercial mortgages, and they make fee income from their cryptocurrency activity. An interesting bank, It's this is not investing in Bank of America or even one of the smaller, more tech-focused banks like we've talked about on the show. This is kind of a, you know, a, a, it's a play on the cryptocurrency industry. Yeah, um, yeah. If, if I mean, more, it, the more money that flows through cryptocurrency exchanges, the more they're going to make. 
and I, I think you summed it up nicely there. I mean, if you look at the way the stock has performed here year to date, it, it was more or less tracking the market up up towards October. But but starting in October, shortly after they had uh, released their quarterly results, this the stock just went. I mean, as as they like to say, parabolic, man, <laughs> just went straight up. In, in year to date, the stock has returned about one hundred twenty five percent versus the markets close to twelve or something. So clearly. Um, Silvergate having a very good year, and and I can understand at least. And when you're looking through the transcript from the most recent quarter, customers completed over thirty six billion dollars in Silvergate Exchange network transfers during the third quarter alone. Now that exceeded thirty two billion dollars that was done all throughout two thousand and nineteen together. So clearly, that Silvergate Exchange network is gaining a lot of traction, and and maybe that maybe that's the enthusiasm there. I mean, I, I certainly understand it based on on uh, your description of how the company makes its money. Um, I, I, you know, I will reiterate: this is a small bank. I mean, a six hundred six hundred million dollar market cap uh, roundabout. Um, also worth noting that it it has a very low float. I mean, there, there's there's a, a low number of shares outstanding just under 19 million it looks like half of that essentially is the float on the open market so anytime my point is anytime you see a small cap bank like that with a low float you're typically going to see some some hefty bid and ask spreads right and you're going to see some some pretty volatile movement from time to time it's all to say if it's a bank that you're interested in i mean this is the kind of bank where i think a limit order probably makes a lot more sense if you're interested in owning it yeah for sure i i mean i would i would tiptoe into this one if you were interested in it um i prefer it to owning actual bitcoin as an investment yeah um, just, i was wondering because about that, that actually like that mortgage side of the business should be, provide nice steady income and then the fee income side of the business is the growth avenue so you know, it's like a nice combination of steady, predictable, recurring revenue and growth potential. So, but I, I mean, like I said, I like it better than investing in actual cryptocurrency. But it's this is like I said, this is not Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase. So I'd, I'd be tiptoeing cautiously. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, Ben, thanks for the question. We appreciate it, uh, Matt. Before we wrap things up this week, let's give our listeners one to watch. What's the stock that you'll be watching this coming week? I am watching Slack Technologies. Um, I just slacked with Jason before this uh, <laughs> this broadcast. Um, Slack is it's not necessarily confirmed yet, but it's essentially reported that they are going to be bought out by Salesforce. Uh, the latest rumblings is that it's going to be about half cash, half stock. Um, I'm curious to see the exact terms. Uh, the the unnamed source that spoke this morning said that it would be higher than the current price, which I'm wondering if that means now or before <laughs> the, the the merger rumblings. Because I'm a Slack shareholder, so that I, ah, okay. um, and then once it's once the actual terms are announced, you have to decide whether you want to be a Salesforce shareholder or if you want to head for the exit. So it's it's going to be an interesting dynamic. I think. An acquisition by Salesforce will do wonders for Slack as a platform and make it a much more valuable platform. It'll help it compete with Microsoft um, a lot more on the, the workplace workplace collaboration front. So I, I, that's what I'm watching this week. What do you have your eye on? 
Yeah, so um, I'm going to be keeping my eye on Live Person, uh, ticker LPSN. And Live Person, some of you may remember, the technology uh, enables consumers and businesses to connect through mobile messaging, and it ultimately helps uh, integrate uh, chat and messaging functions into a seamless experience. So whether you're using Facebook or Amazon or WhatsApp or whatever it may be, um, they're really helping consumers and businesses connect in a more seamless fashion from start to finish uh, but we're going to have actually next week, Matt, and I know you know this, uh, we'll be having the founder and CEO of, of Live Person, Rob Locasio, back on the show uh, next Monday. And he's going to talk about an interesting new relationship that Live Person has formed with Bella, B E L L A. This is a new digital banking startup which actually launches today. And uh, Live Person has partnered with Bella uh, to use its technology to, con- to connect with consumers. And, and so if you, you look at the general idea of what Bella is based on and um, you know, bringing Live Person's technology into the fold there, I think it's going to be a really fun conversation to have. Uh, looking forward to speaking with Rob next week. And that'll be the interview for next Monday's show. Um, and so, uh, you know, definitely looking forward to, to having Rob back on talking more about what they're doing at live person, what, what, you know, he sees the future as with Bella and, um, and, and in the future of banking in general. So, uh, that, that'll be my one to watch for the coming week. But Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, listen, man, I'm glad that you were able to take last week off, get a little time out with your wife and uh, relax. But hey, I'm really glad to have you back, too. So thanks for spending the time with us this week. Of course. I guess I will see you in two weeks. Yes, you will. <laughs> and remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus or drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back.